Kia ora, I'm Johnny Blades. You're with The House. Of all the types of participants in the parliamentary process, this one might just be the most committed. Organising protests, submitting to select committees, sending in petitions, just being there or whatever it takes to get their message across. They are the activists, the ones in it for the long term, whose work inevitably brings them to engage with Parliament. Not the agitators who talk about hanging MPs while also calling themselves activists. So let's have a look at a few devoted activists who participate in the Parliament system. From the single or serial issue troopers to the lifelong activist who became an MP and got out alive. First, an organiser of multiple campaigns. Kia ora, I'm Valerie Morse. I'm a community organiser. I work a lot with Peace Action Wellington. We do anti-war organising, we do climate justice organising, do anti-racist organising, um, and generally try to be out in the community talking to people about social justice. You have been a frequent visitor to Parliament in your capacity as a protester, I suppose, and as an activist. I think I've had a pretty long and, and colourful um, term, I guess, coming to Parliament. Um, so I guess a few of the highlights were we did a, a naked protest on the grounds of Parliament around the genetic engineering moratorium back in 2004. I've been here for dozens and dozens of protests, everything from anti-war protests to um, protesting against the GCSB. i um, been here in the House to do select committee submissions and often kind of theatre, I guess, as part of those submissions. What do you mean by theatre at, at the select committee? Well, sometimes those submission processes can be incredibly disempowering. Um, MPs certainly do not necessarily pay uh, the kind of attention that you would like to, to what it is that you have to say. And so often it's a matter of using some theatre. So, for example, we did a submission around uh, changes to the SIS legislation in which we took a whole lot of whistles in um, to talk about whistleblowing and blew the whistles in, in the select committee hearing, much to the dismay of the um, chair and the, the other select committee um, <laughs> members. It was a time of a lot of, I guess, examination of the powers of the intelligence services, particularly the GCSB, but also the SIS about mass surveillance. Um, there was a lot of community interest. And of course, those are agencies that don't have a great deal of openness and transparency. And so it was very frustrating to try to engage in that kind of process here at the House. Can you point to any outcomes from those submissions that you refer to? Those processes are often very, very difficult to see very much meaningful change in the short term. Over the longer term, there have been changes in the way those agencies operate. So there has been some greater openness but particularly around submissions, unless you're speaking to some very, very specific item that they think is a, perhaps a mistake or a drafting error, they're often pretty hardened down party lines. And so it can be really hard to make changes in that process. Does the same thing apply for the protests you've been part of? Can you point to any ways that the protests may have changed, changed the way things are looked at or done? Perhaps one of the greatest examples is the decision by the government back in 2003 not to be a part of the war in Iraq, um, the initial invasion. New Zealand ultimately did later support uh, the British occupation in Iraq. But I think there were huge anti-war protests leading up to the actual invasion. We'd had anti-war protests from 2001 since the 
from from the time of 9-11. And that, I think, was a profound message to the government who was sympathetic to that message of not wanting to participate in an illegal war in, in Iraq. And so I think those protests in particular were very helpful for the government. The protests that often are ultimately the tipping point are protests by the far right. So I would say the farming class, the anti-vaxxers who come here with a huge amount of resources behind them. Again, under the same Labour government, we saw a hundred farmers drive tractors up to the steps of Parliament and immediately the government abandoned what was then a carbon tax. If we had passed that so-called fart tax back then, we would be leaps and bounds ahead in terms of addressing urgent climate issues. And, and it makes me think of the lobbyists who are quite a force to be reckoned with. What's the difference really between what lobbyists do and what activists like yourself do here at Parliament? Well, I, I, think, I think the big word, of course, is money and, and resources. So, you know, we've got political lobbyists who are representing the biggest industries um, in the country. So food and beverage industries, plastics industries, uh, oil and gas industries, mining activities, all of those kinds of things. And they are supporting both sides of the, the picture. So they're not just supporting one party. They're often talking to and lobbying and supporting with campaign donations, those industries, I mean, with, with resources. Us activists and people out here in the community aren't doing that. So the people that get listened to are the people with those money and resources. The, the, the voices that don't get heard are often the people in marginalized communities. There's no voice for the environment that sustains us. So things like climate stuff get push, pushed to the back burner. The health of our waterways, for example, gets pushed to the back burner because other interests have very real pressing personal financial interests to benefit from changes to legislation. From my perspective, we need very serious, thoroughgoing reforms to the democratic system. You know, we have this idea that the Westminster parliamentary system is somehow democracy, end of story. Democracy takes many, many forms. And this system is effectively an imported system from the United Kingdom. This is not an organic system developed, uh, keeping in mind Tatsirati or Waitangi um, and the indigenous you know, indigenous component of Aotearoa. So we have to be open to the possibility that democracy looks very, very different than Westminster democracy. Some activists focus on a single issue. In this next case, drug reform is his long-running goal, for which he has become very much a face of the message. My name is Gary Charles. I'm a cannabis law reform activist and a regular visit to the Gallery at Parliament. I'm there for every question time, uh, for the simple reason that that's the only time that all the MPs have to be in the House. How many years have you been going to question time? Uh, well, I first started going to question time uh, when Jacinda Ardern became Prime Minister. Well, what it was, was I was actually protesting outside Parliament during the John Key years, and I was doing things like dressing up in a joint costume, that sort of theat theatrical stuff outside. And then I decided when Jacinda Ardern became Prime Minister that this was our chance to get drug law reform happening and uh, I needed to be in the House to remind them. And uh, you're not allowed to wear signs, wave signs or, or wear slogan T-shirts and things in Parliament, but it, I found out that the dress code allowed me to get in there if I had a suit on. 
so I bought a cannabis suit. That's right, and you, you generally wear that when you're up there in the, in the gallery, don't you? You've got green cannabis leaves all it's, emblazoned on it's it. It's dark with, with green cannabis leaves on it. But, uh, yes, the re- reason for that is uh, it's completely visible to all the EMPs. Wherever I'm sitting, they always know I'm there. And it's to remind them that we're nearly 50 years into this stupid Misuse of Drugs Act, and they've had multiple chances to reform it and have not managed to do it so far. And I had the disappointing thing for law reformers was the government used that as an excuse to say no to all other drug law reform. And the referendum was a specific question about whether a specific bill should be entered into the parliamentary process as opposed to the, the euthanasia referendum, which was about a bill that had already passed through Parliament that only needed to be ticked off by the public. So we didn't even get our chance to have our bill submitted to Parliament. And that's all the referendum was voted on. It wasn't a yes-no on law reform altogether. But drug reform is something you have been engaging with the Parliament on in various ways for years now, right? Pretty much since 2010. Now, that was the first time I... I got active. I'd always always considered myself a supporter of law reform, but it was the first time I got off my ass and thought, well, I have to do my bit to try and get this sorted because at that time it was like, oh, no, it's 40 years. Now we're coming up to 50 years. You know, when's it going to end? And you've also submitted petitions in this area, including quite recently a petition calling for an end to the prosecution and arrest of people on cannabis-related charges, right? Yeah, yeah, I put a petition through uh, Speaker's Office, through Parliament, uh, collected signatures, the petition was closed, and then I went to have it submitted, presented to Parliament, and the uh, MP's office that uh, I was asking to do that for me came back from the Speaker's Office and said that there's actually another petition already in there about cannabis law reform, and we can't have two on the same subject in the same term. So that got parked. The sight of Gary Childs in his cannabis suit is a familiar one at Parliament during sitting weeks. I think of myself as being the gallery stalker. You know, they all know I'm there whether they're engaging with me or not, and they all know what I'm about because of what I'm wearing. Um, and it's about reminding them. And I like, any time I talk to an MP about it, I remind them, well, look, I was 13 years old when the Misuse of Drugs Act was passed, and I've just turned 60. What are you going to do about it? You know, why do we have to wait another 50 years? What's going on? Uh, I have become familiar, yes. I didn't really know much when I first started visiting. It was all a bit of an eye-opener. But I, I decided that I needed to know yeah. how things worked inside Parliament uh, if I wanted to make change happen. Is it a system that the public can, can use constructively? I think public access to our Parliament is incredible. The whole... Occupation of Parliament, to me, threatened our access and that you know, I could see that we might end up with gates around, you know, like they have in the United States where you can only stand outside and take photos and you're not allowed to actually get inside there and wander around. Um, so it, it was, that was something that I was fearful of, so I'm glad to see that, that our Parliament has retained its openness, although there is a heightened sense of security threat since that time, and it's palpable. You can feel it when you're at Parliament compared to how it was before. But that openness, it's not something that people, the public, necessarily know about. I think the whole political engagement 
thing is uh, some people mistake watching the news and getting angry about things the same as political engagement, whereas um, actually going to Parliament and observing what's going on there, you start to realise that the media paints a picture that isn't quite how it is. And uh, the MPs that they're trying to make you hate sometimes are actually just people trying to do the best at their job. One thing that's made me aware that everybody in there is a person is seeing some of the MPs I share nothing in common with with their family and observing how much their kids hero-worship their parents. And it humanises what's going on in Parliament a lot more than, than if you're not engaged or if you're only getting your information through what you see on the news. And I suppose people start to recognise you there. You know, people all through the precinct, whether it be security or I suppose some MPs think there's Gary Charles. Yeah. My whole attitude to the, the people who work at Parliament changed the day that there was a person set themselves on fire in the forecourt and the first people on the scene to try and deal with that were the Parliament security. Um, and that made me reappraise my attitude to them because they walk the fine line every day between allowing public access and maintaining security. And I think they do a really good job of it. In his own words, the following activist has taken on all manner of things as part of his work. Almost three decades ago, he took a chainsaw to the Great Pine on One Tree Hill, or Maunga Kiakia, to raise attention to Māori rights and issues around the treaty settlement process. So my name is Mike Smith. I'm from the far north. I'm a member of the Ngāpui and Ngāti Kau peoples, and currently working on climate uh, issues for a number of organisations, including the National Iwi Chairs Forum and the Māori Climate Platform. We're here on the forecourt of Parliament. I guess you've probably been here before in, in some sort of protest action? Yes, yeah, so there's been a few occasions we've uh, been on the forecourt of Parliament here, taking part in various political actions, Foreshore and Seabed sure Hikoi being one in recent memory, uh, also um, the... Uh, presenting petitions, I think it was here we presented the petition to stop deep sea oil drilling after a 10 year campaign and the Prime Minister came out and greeted us, we handed her a a petition uh, to halt deep sea oil drilling um, and she went back to her office and within about two weeks the announcement came through that the government had indeed um, decided to um, uh, put a moratorium on issuing new exploration permits. Um, but there's been other things, you know, the asset sales um, mobilisations over the years, uh, Waitangi-related protests, uh, all manner of things. So, I mean, that maybe shows that activism, it can actually get results sometimes in this place? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think politics and indeed the law should reflect the morality of the society or the, the mood of the society at any particular time. However, there'll be uh, powerful voices, vested interests, that'll be pulling against um, popular opinion. And so it's, um, it's important that there are opportunities for the public to express themselves to, I mean, the word demonstration sort of sums it up. We've got to demonstrate what that feeling is amongst the public and uh, bringing those voices uh, to occasions uh, like demonstrations outside of Parliament is one way of doing that. What about Indigenous rights? How important is activism in that space? 
Well, in the climate space in which I work, it's critically important because we've got to hold the politicians' uh, feet to the fire, in a sense, to encourage them to to um, formulate legislation and policies that could be, on the surface, unpopular, both um, uh, both in the economic sector or indeed amongst the public. Uh, and so. We've got to create a, man, a mandate, a public mandate, and send them a message that uh, by taking strong action on climate issues, they will not be punished in the polls, but be rewarded, uh, provided that enough people are conscientised uh, towards that end. Equally, we need to hold their feet to the fire if they don't take the type of action that's required, and uh, to basically give them courage and send them a message that if they do the right thing, um, there's a benefit, a political benefit in there for them. But yeah, once again, if they don't, um, they you know could be punished equally in the polls. Uh, we do meet with ministers from time to time. This morning at 8 a.m., we had a call with Grant Robinson and a number of other ministers about the cyclone uh, response from the government, um, and that's okay. But I, I think um, at the, wide, the the point that you're covering about the widespread expression of widespread public sentiment is um, you know is something that I think is very, very important. I mean, anybody can arrange uh, meetings with ministers and they may or may not be uh, listened to or heard, but there's something far more powerful about a, a, uh, an expression of a substantive um, section of society. You know, I've been on marches where 50,000, 60,000 people have mobilised in Auckland and Wellington on issues, particularly around climate issues and, and mining on conservation land issues. And I know the politicians, when they see that amount of people standing up, they really do take notice of that. If you're just a small delegation coming in to push a particular issue, sure, you might get a hearing, but it's not quite as powerful as 50,000 people out on the streets. To know what's achievable through Parliament, the activist must learn of its limitations. And what better way to do that than become an MP? Like Catherine Delahunty, former Green Party MP between 2008 and 2017. I started by protest, pretty much like I've been on many, many protests here throughout my life. In fact, when I was an MP, I probably went to more protests because you could see them out the window, so you just had to go out the window and join them. But um, when I was a young person, when I, I left um, and went and lived in the bush in, in the Hauraki, I was, uh, until the mining issue really got big, I, I, I was quite detached from Parliament. I was living in a totally different world and could never have imagined that I'd ever work here. And then um, when we got active fighting multinational mining companies, uh, we used to come down here on lobbying trips and go to see, I mean, I remember a meeting with David Longy, you know, people like that. So it was a long time ago, you know, we'd do this, you know, getting stuck in the snow and going to be late for the lobbying meeting with the David Longy or whoever, you know. So, yeah, we did, we did all those kind of meetings and media rounds once we... There was a mining company cocktail party being hosted in the Beehive ground floor and we busted in with um, five, oh, I think it was about seven Father Christmas suits and a whole a lot of sacks of toxic tailings. And, you know, <laughs> awesome. We've done all that. Yeah, it was just life. I've always done that so sort of kind of creative protest as well as engaging with the, with the system around you know, petitions, etc. When, when when we deemed that to be effective. Was it a, a motivation as an activist that drove you to stand for Parliament? Not really. Um, I, I guess it was a motivation to advance some kaupapa after many years of activism and, and also for the 10 years before I was in Parliament, I ran a school for social change. So I was training people and educating people in, in political analysis and activism and I'm still involved in that organisation. Um, 
and that was a great job. But there were some issues that I'd been involved with over many years that I wanted to see if I could advance. For example, the sawmill workers who were poisoned in the Bay of Plenty, who are um, to who I'm still deeply connected to, and I'm still working with them, lobbying ACC for change. Um, we were working with them, and then I thought, well, if I get into Parliament, maybe I can make some change. And I did manage to. Um, actually get the national government to set up a national register of, of toxic sites and things like that, which needed to happen. So you, I just saw another opportunity, and I guess because some of my friends were here, like Sue Bradford was um, number three in the Greens at the time, and so I was working with her in this other organisation, I could see there are there are many sites of power and many ways to make change, and I, and I thought, well, I'd quite like to give it a go with some of these, some of the issues that I'm still passionate about, Tetriti, the sawmill workers, um, mining, all those kind of things. And what you find out, of course, when you get here is, yes, you can make a difference, and no, you can't. <laughs> a bit of both. A, bit of, a lot of both, because the system is, um, fundamentally the Westminster system is an adversarial toxic system, which I personally don't believe in. So if there was any conclusion I came to as an activist, after leaving Parliament, is we, we need to constitutional transformation of this country based on te Tiriti and he whakaputanga. I mean, I've always thought that really, but I didn't really understand that so clearly until I'd been here. But having said that, I still engage with select committees. I still engage with um, the groups. I mean, we're still engaging with, with the system to try and get um, small things done. But I'm not under any illusion that we're changing the world. Yeah. Parliament will never lead that kind of change. Parliament isn't set up to do that. You know, having been an MP, it, it has helped you as an activist sort of know the limitations or, or know how things are done here. Yeah, well, in a practical kind of way. I mean, I always felt the system was rotten <laughs> but actually when you've been inside it you do have more knowledge and more context so it's easier for me to walk in the door here now and have a chat with somebody that I, I wouldn't have known before. It's a very elite privilege to have been a member of parliament and you maintain that privilege you know this is my past that I'm holding here which means I can always walk in this door as a former member of parliament. Whether I can get any impact is another matter but the first thing is to get through the door so yes there are, there are um, privileged opportunities that come from knowing the game, knowing the people, and knowing what's worth doing and what's not worth doing. But at the same time, sometimes I, I know that it's still really, really important to go outside the building and confront power um, non-violently um, and clearly. Um, and, you know, I'm utterly committed to that as well. In the work that I do with the, as chair of uh, Coromandel Watchdog of Hauraki, we do direct action and protests, that's part of our, uh, what we've always done, but not necessarily to Parliament. It's quite difficult to get people down here, so we do it in our own area. Um, it's more about relationships with media, so media is a critical interface between um, pressure on politicians. I, I do things like I write questions in the House for existing politicians um, who I know, which sometimes get used, because I know how to do that, and that's that privilege of knowing how to write a question that might get on into question time, because once you get a question on something, then you might be able to put pressure on. I definitely value the relationships I have here within the limits of the structure itself. I think activism full stop has changed with the internet changes, with the, the power of um, social media and the way in which people operate. I mean, I'm of the previous generation, um, not a digital native, and I still think you need to do physically real things like meet people, you know. Have, have, hey, that's radical. Yeah, 
seems to be, have a real relationship. I mean, once you've known someone personally, you know, um, I firmly believe in the importance of the kaupapa, but if you start becoming too risk-averse because this place starts to be only about maintaining power, then you need to be challenged. And I think that's a risk at all times. And I grew up on the era I was, you know, flatting with Jeanette Fitzsimons and Rod Donald. I saw the people that built the green. So I have, like, a strong passion for what those people really were here for, and it wasn't just about getting into um, power with labour. You know, so there's lots of issues that I'm quite happy to raise, both as an activist and as a former member of parliament. I, I don't, I don't feel like it's not personal, but I think it's important that people, like they say about universities, critic in conscience. I think people who've had the privilege of having access to power need to be a critical voice and a critical conscience of those who hold it. Yeah. A lot of talk lately about um, lobbyists in this place. What's the difference between lobbyists and activists? The people I work with, no one's paid to go and, you know, we spend months and months trying to get a meeting with a minister. Um, no, we don't have a PR firm who work for us to, to massage our messages. We are activists who will take our truth to power. And I don't think lobbying is necessarily about taking truth to power. It's about vested interests. And I think that's the difference. Let vested interests pay for their interests to be privileged inside the power system. That's very different from activists challenging the power system to actually do something in the name of justice. Always a voice for, for various communities. The four activists all point to short-term thinking as something holding Parliament back from enabling systemic change. They work to transform these views and inject a public voice into the deliberations of the lawmakers. Their work's usually unpaid and sometimes overlooked. But without activists turning up to do their thing, Parliament would be a little empty. You've been listening to The House, a programme made with funding from Parliament. Matewa.